Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to week number two of a really interesting sermon series on a really interesting part of the Bible, the book of Esther. Uh, before we jump into week number two and our text for today, I, uh, I made a threat last Sunday, if you were here in church, that I would call some of you at 2.17 in the morning and ask you for a specific Bible passage, Romans 8, verse 28, quick show of hands, how many of you are ready for this pop quiz I'm about to give you? How many of you are terrified that I'm about to call on you? <laughs> Yes, all right. <laughs> I'll, give, I'll give you a pass this time, but if you know it, we learned this little phrase. It's really the summary of the book of Esther, that even if we don't feel it, even if we can't see it, even if it's not evident, we believe, can you say it with me, in all things, God works for the good. Yeah, that's kind of the, the hope and prayer we have for this sermon series, that you believe when this book is done, that in all things, not just the easy things, the convenient things, the things you planned, in all things, God is working for your good. So way back in 1953, a 24-year-old guy, Atlanta native, stood at the altar, looked the love of his life in her eyes, and vowed to love her deeply until death would do them part. Just a year later, in the mid-1950s, this same young man received a call into ministry and began a really promising career as a pastor in the city of Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, Just a year after that, he received his doctorate, and just a few months after that, he and his wife were blessed with their very first baby, a little girl that they named Yolanda. Marriage was good. Fatherhood was good. Ministry was good. People were interested, salivating over this young man's potential to be a pastor who could make a huge impact. But just a few weeks, After everything had lined up in his life, a black woman refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery City bus. You probably know the story of who that woman was. And maybe now your brain has put together who that new father, husband, and pastor was too. Rosa Parks was the woman who refused to give up her seat, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was that father, husband, and pastor. And because Rosa Parks' story happened in his church's backyard, Dr. King had a choice to make. It seemed to most people that few people were better positioned to do something about the injustice of the American South than Dr. King. He was a pastor who believed that God loved the world, a God who did not discriminate. He was a pastor who believed in the cause of justice, as the Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles said. He he was a man who had the kind of mind who could dream about a better America. And God had given him lips that could speak and stir the hearts of American consciences. Dr. King was in the right spot. God had put him in that place for a purpose. And yet he knew, and everyone knew, that if he would step into that calling and do what is right, it would be a great risk. Uh, The racists of the American South did not just bark. They bit. In fact, they sometimes bombed. And Dr. King and his wife had a baby girl sitting in a crib at home. God had thrown him a slow pitch to do what was right, what the Bible would call righteousness. But he knew deep in his heart that if he did, doing right would come with a risk. That's true, though, isn't it? 
Sometimes when God gives you the chance to do something good and right, something biblical and obedient, something beautiful that lasts for eternity, it's not always comfortable and it's not always simple. Sometimes it makes your palms sweat and and here's why. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes, if you're watching at home too, because sometimes doing right is risky. Sometimes doing what is right in the eyes of God will cost you your comfort. It, it will make you sweat just a little bit. You'll, you'll hesitate wondering if you should do it. Sometimes doing right is risky. If you know a, a police officer or a politician, you realize this is true, don't you? I recently uh, met a couple. I heard their story last Friday who came from Central Africa, war-torn, civil war, rebellious infighting groups, just carnage, mayhem, injustice. It made me realize how beautiful it is to have good police officers and a fairly stable government. But if you are a cop or if you know a cop, you realize that being a cop can be risky. You sometimes wear a bulletproof vest for a reason. Confronting injustice, arresting people who are breaking the law comes with a risk. In fact, you know what else comes with a risk is reporting the officers next to you who are not standing up for the cause of justice. Being a good police officer, doing what's right, serving and protecting can be risky. And I don't know about you, but I would rather be a pastor than a politician these days. Uh, even the best of them will get more hate mail in a week than I'll probably get in my entire life. Like to stand up for the, the values of democracy, what's good and right, and not just what's convenient for the here and now in the next election, that, that is no small thing to do. To break ranks with your party when they're not acting for the cause of righteousness and justice, they're just trying to win an election at any means possible. If you're a Democrat, to speak against the Democrats, if you're a Republican, to say, no, 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 that's, that's not how we should be acting like that. Doing right in the political realm is as risky as it is in the realm of police officers. Doing right in so many occupations is risky. And do you know who else it's risky for? You. I bet before this month is over, God will call you, he'll give you a slow pitch to do something that's right. But you will know deep in your bones, you'll, you'll hesitate to take that step because you'll feel that it's a risk. You'll be nervous about the reaction, about the result. Sometimes what's obviously right is risky. I'll give you three examples. How about confessions or confrontations or invitations? It's risky to make an honest confession. I see that all the time in church. A Christian is struggling with this thing, but this thing is kind of embarrassing. And so when someone asks them, how are you doing? How, how can I pray for you? They, they talk about the safe stuff, right? Not the sexual stuff, not the substance stuff, not the real stuff, not the struggling relationship, not, not the depression, not the doubts. We, we just pray for like great grandma's cancer and, and safe travels as the kids go back to school. I mean, the Bible's pretty clear about this, huh? Don't give false testimony. Tell the truth. But when someone asks you how you're doing and you know that a really vulnerable, transparent confession might be met with an uncertain reaction, you realize that doing the right thing is risky. 
I've been in enough small group Bible studies here at our church to realize that, that everyone, even if it feels safe, is hesitant to take that step. If, if these people really knew me, would they accept me? Would they love me? If they knew that I had a legal record, if they knew that I struggled with, with weed or heroin or fentanyl, if they knew that I'm a registered sex offender, if they knew that I look at pornography, if they knew that behind this beautiful suburban home is a family that's just struggling to stay connected, if they knew me, would they love me? Tell the truth, God says. But doing that, doing what's right, is, is risky. It's not just confessions. Here's what else is risky. Confrontations. Well, Jesus was super clear about it. If your brother or sister sins, go and show them. Just between the two of you. Don't talk about people. Talk to people. Like if there's someone at church, if there's someone at work, if there's someone at school, like don't whisper behind their back that you... You show them respect and you show them love and you just say it to their face. You don't, you don't vent to your sister. You, you don't go off on your girlfriend and you go home. Can you believe this guy? You, you have the courage. You have the heart to say something to their face. <laughs> and do you know what percentage of Christians actually do that? Two. Two percent. I'm, uh, I'm making up that stat and I'm probably being generous because all of us know it, right? No, no one wants to be confronted. No one wants to have the hard conversation. We just hope and pray that somehow it gets fixed and we don't have to say anything because we know it is so risky to say, hey, I love you, but hey, that, that is not what Jesus says. Hey, it's not cool with God when you and a confession will make you sweat. A confrontation will make you nervous. And <laughs> If that weren't enough, how about an invitation? In the culture that I was raised in and 20th, 21st century America, there's two things you do not talk about in mixed company. They are politics and, and religion. Huh? So the Bible's clear. This is really good news. Go and make disciples, Jesus said. Preach the good news to all creation. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, but when the person you work with doesn't go to church or you're dating someone and it's going really well and you don't want to be that, you know, that awkward, down your throat, twisting your arm, religious kind of person, I mean, you feel it, right? You, you don't want to like, take a risk on this relationship. Will they take a step back from you? You could invite them to church. You, you could offer to pray for them. You could tell them about Jesus. But sometimes we can work with someone or go to school with someone or live next door to someone for months or years or even more. And have we ever told them just the simplest message that means so much to us? Well, the answer is sometimes no. Because doing right is risky. Guess what I have a hunch that lots of you do, because I do it too. That you don't tell anyone about that one embarrassing sin and you just hope that God will somehow fix it with another prayer. And you don't have like that face-to-face come to Jesus, woodshed moment with someone who's sinning. You just hope that someone else confronts them or somehow they just magically see it even though they can't see it. And you want your friends and your family members to meet Jesus and know this good news. You just kind of hope that maybe they, you know, find some TikTok video and some evangelist or, or maybe they just ask you one day, what do you believe about Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior? <laughs> right? we, just, we just hope that somehow in some other way the situation changes. But here's the deal. 
Sometimes, like with Dr. King, the person that God is calling to change the situation is two. It's you. Last week, when we began the study of the book of Esther, uh, a woman told me that she, she was crying in church because we, we said this big idea that God puts people in place for a purpose. And she said, everyone around her was crying too. How beautiful, right? God puts us, there, there's no accidents or coincidence. God puts us in this place, in this time, in this spot in history for a purpose. But here's, here's the question maybe you didn't think about last week. What if that purpose is to take a risk? What if that big idea that you are living here and now is not just for your comfort and blessing? What if it's, what if it's for theirs? And what if God has put you here in this situation to do something difficult, something dangerous, something where you don't know how it's going to turn out? It might not turn out great. Well, based on the decibel level in the room right now, I'm guessing... You need some help with that. And that's why I'm so glad I brought one of these today. Uh, today, we're going to continue our study of the book of Esther. And we're going to come across what I think is probably the most historically famous quote from all 10 chapters of this Old Testament book. And that quote, spoken by Esther's cousin 2,500 years ago, is going to be God's nudge. Not a nudge, it's going to be his two hand shove to try to convince you to take the risk. It's going to be God's will, God's promise, that if we're going to pray after this message is done, our Father in heaven, your will be done. What we're saying is, God, help me do what you want me to do. Help me to take the risk. Help me not to care about my comfort, my image, my popularity. Help me to care about you and people so much that I will do whatever it is, whatever it takes, however risky it might feel. That's the goal of today's message. So let's journey back in time, 2,500 years. We're around the year 480 BC. We're on the other side of the planet in ancient Iran. If you know the story of Esther chapter 1 and 2, there was this ancient king named Xerxes. He just finished the very first season of The Persian Bachelor, uh, TVMA, not safe for work version, all right? So don't read this at, at work. He's probably slept with uh, dozens, if not hundreds of beautiful women, back to back to back to back to back, one night stands. And at the end of it, he gave the rose to this orphan slash model named Esther. Esther was a Jewish woman. She was a descendant of the family tree of Abraham, but no one knew that because her cousin Mordecai, who helped raise her because he was an orphan, told her to keep that secret quiet. Where we left things off last week, things were looking really good. Esther, against all odds, had become the queen. And Mordecai, her cousin, had actually just saved the life of the king. Things were looking great for them and the Jewish people. But then, then in chapter 3, things take a terrible, terrible turn. Because in Esther chapter 3, we meet the villain of all villains. We meet the first Hitler. We meet a man who planned the genocide of Jesus' Jewish ancestors. If you have a Bible with you or you want to follow along up on the screen, here's what happens in Esther chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. 
But Mordecai, Esther's cousin, would not kneel down or pay him honor. Hmm. So Haman becomes what we call the vice president, the the prime minister, the second in command of this mega superpower of the ancient world. Uh, I was, this is just me, I was picturing him like Jafar, uh, but with a Hitler mustache. All right, so this is like, this is Haman. He's, he's very powerful. He's very persuasive. He's, you know, worked his way up. We see he's honored more than all the other officials in this massive ancient empire. But Mordecai, Esther's cousin, refuses to kneel down and pay him honor. Now, how many of you are really excited about a sermon tangent that talks about the genealogies of the Old Testament? Yes, thank you. We got two. All right, we're good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count that. We're, we're two or three are gathered together and want to hear about a genealogy. Here's the, here's the quick tangent. Mordecai and Haman come from families that have had a blood feud for about a thousand years. All right, so Mordecai is Jewish. He's an Israelite. Haman, it says, is an Agagite, which was like a tribe from the ancient Amalekites. And if you would read the beginning of the Bible, way back in the days of Moses, like 1500 BC, you find out that when Mordecai's ancestors, Moses and his people, were just escaping their slavery in Egypt, it was Haman's ancestors, the Amalekites, that pounced. They kidnapped, they killed, you know, this would be like, like kidnapping a Holocaust survivor just when they were freed from Auschwitz. And, and that was so serious and bad to God, he sent a curse on all the ancient Amalekite people. 500 years after that, in the days of King Saul of Israel, there was another foreign king from the Amalekites named Agag. So Agagites, you hear that in Haman's name. And King Saul, the Israelite, and King Agag, the Amalekite, fought each other too. Saul won, captured Agag, and then the prophet Samuel killed Agag, the ancient ancestor of Haman. And so for, for a thousand years, these two people, the Amalekites and the Israelites, have been fighting each other, killing each other. These are like just bad blood, two gangs going at each other's throats. And so when, when Haman is exalted to this spot in the kingdom, there's a thousand years of bad blood. And when he walks by Mordecai, this stubborn, proud Jewish man says, mm -mm. he hates Haman. And Haman hates him back even more. In fact, when the word starts to spread that there is this Jewish man at the king's gate who will not bow the knee to Haman, Haman sees an opportunity. He has the position, he has the power, here's his chance not just to murder Mordecai, but to once and for all wipe out all of Mordecai's people, to win this 1,000-year fight once and for all. So here's what he does. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Ooh. He's wicked, and he's wicked smart. He taps into Xerxes' fear of a rebellion. There's these people who have different, a different culture, a different custom. They don't assimilate and they don't follow the king's laws. You, you never know, king, if these people grow what they'll do. 
And, O king, if you will just issue this decree to wipe them off the face of the map, I will offer you 10,000 talents of silver. Have you checked your conversion rate on ancient talents of silver? Um, Some historians think that this amount was about two-thirds of the annual royal income. Two-thirds. Haman probably planned to butcher all the Jews, take all their stuff, sell it, and put it in the coffers. But you see what he's doing. He's tapping in to the king's fear of rebellion and his love of money. And sadly, King Xerxes, who's very persuadable, says yes. He gives Haman his signet ring. Haman writes up the decree for the first Holocaust. This final solution, it basically says, if you see a Jew anywhere in all of the kingdom, you can kill him, plunder him, take his stuff. It's sealed with King Xerxes' ring. The royal couriers on their horses, they race out to all 127 provinces. And and get this, on the eve of the Passover, the news spreads through every Jewish community that 11 months from now, they had cast a lot. On the 12th month of the year, all of us will be dead. The king himself and his right-hand man have decreed. The government, the governors in all of the provinces are on this side. The, the Jews are a small remnant who is vastly outnumbered, and 11 months from now, all of us will be dead. When Mordecai hears the news, he is mortified. Not only is this giant death clock counting down, he has less than a year to live. All of his people, all of God's chosen people will be dead with him. The promises made to Abraham and others about the coming Messiah, the Savior, would be, would be cut off and never fulfilled. He covers himself in sackcloth and ashes. He mourns and wails at the king's gate. But his cousin Esther, his fellow Jew, has no clue. Apparently, she's in the palace, and no one knows that she's Jewish, so they don't bother her with this news of a genocide of some small tribe who keeps themselves separate. I picture her sitting on a comfortable couch with a servant feeding her grapes and you know, fanning her with a palm frond. She's, she's fine, but Mordecai knows that Esther is the only chance. And so he IDMs her. He indirect messages her through some servant of the king, and you know, the servant runs up with Mordecai's message and pleads. He says, Esther, you have to say something. Your husband is the king. You you need to step up. You need to do what's right and rescue God's people. But Esther knows that's a bit risky. Jump ahead to chapter 4. You see Esther's answer. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Oops, I'm sorry, I'm one off. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Uh, pretty fascinating. Archaeologists have actually discovered exactly what Esther was afraid of. Um, I've seen some of the, the discoveries from ancient Iran from the kingdom of Xerxes, and there's one like, massive sculpture. It's called a relief. And it shows King Xerxes' big curly beard sitting on his royal throne. He has this massive scepter in his hand. And, and right behind his throne, like right behind the back of the chair, is a line of sh- soldiers carrying very, very sharp objects. 
this one big old Persian with like a battle axe in his hand. Because this was the rule. There, there were assassins in those days who'd march up to the king and then they'd stab him before they could stop him. And so the, the rule was you cannot even step into the room of the king without an invitation. Dropping appointments are not allowed. And if you tried, if you, if you stepped in unannounced, one of two things would happen. Either the king on his royal throne would extend to you his golden scepter for mercy and spare you, or Mr. Battleaxe behind the throne would put you on a diet and you'd end up about this much lighter. And those are the only options. And you might be thinking, well, Esther, you're, you're his wife. I mean, he, he picked you. You're the, the winner of the Persian Bachelor. It's going to be fine. But Esther points out to her cousin, it's been 30 days since I've even seen my husband. It's probably proof that she was more of a trophy wife to him than the love of his life. And so if one of the many, many women in the harem that he's sleeping with walks into his presence, what will happen to her? Will it cost her everything? Esther hesitated because doing what was right was risky. But in that moment, when she sends word back to her cousin Mordecai, I, I can't. I might die. This is where the movie soundtrack starts to swell. Right? And some of you know this, that what Mordecai is about to say is actually so famous that if you looked it up on Pinterest, you could find beautiful swirly posts. You could find on Amazon a, a t-shirt with Mordecai's words. There's like literally Christian songs and albums and bands and merch that you can buy with the words of Mordecai because when he knew that his cousin, who he loved so dearly, he, he had raised her like his own daughter, when he knew that she was in this risky situation, he still believed that God had put her there to do what was right. Here's what Mordecai said. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Here's the quote. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I don't got God's playbook, Esther, but who knows? Maybe you are right there for this. Maybe God stirred Xerxes' heart to pick you out of all the other women so that you, a, a Jew, would be there on the very day that the king had decreed the destruction of all the Jews. Maybe God didn't put you in the palace just so you could eat the grapes and be comforted by the fan. Maybe he put you there to take the risk, to do something dangerous, to step up into a higher calling. Maybe he put you there to do what was right, even though it was so risky. And the swell of the soundtrack must have gotten Esther's heart. Because it worked. End of chapter 4. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my ascendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. 
I love that line. If I perish, I perish. I, I, I don't know what will happen. I don't know if this will have some beautiful ending. I could die if I do this, but I'm going to do this because this is what is good. This is what is right because God wants me to take the risk. So, did the pretty queen lose her head? Come back next week <laughs> as we continue our study of the book of Esther. You can understand why that line is famous, right? Uh, this, this might be painful, but this is my purpose. This might cost me everything, but God has me here for this something. And because there are no coincidences, I was at a, a party with the staff of our Christian school, and one of our teachers named Jill, she told me that when she was a little girl, her father used to repeat the words of Mordecai to her every single morning. He'd wake up his daughter, rub her on the head, say, sweetie, God has you here for such a time as this. And then at dinner, when they'd gather back together as a family, the father would ask his daughter, so what was your purpose? And in between the wake-up call and the dinner conversation, her life wasn't always convenient or easy, but God always has a good reason, a good work for her to do. And friends, the same is true for you. Doing what's right is worth the risk. I want you to write that down so you don't forget it today. If you're filling in notes in your bulletin, write this down. Doing right, I, I can't promise you it's going to work out all nice and warm and fuzzy, but doing right is worth the risk. If you step up, put on extra deodorant, and actually do the will of God, you will not look back a year from now or an eternity from now and say, oh, you know what, I, wish, I really wish I wouldn't have done what was right. If you perish, you perish. If they judge you, they judge you. If people react defensively, they react defensively. But doing what is right in the eyes of God is always worth the risk. So, let me ask. Are there some of you here today who for the first time in a long time, maybe the first time in forever, are actually going to be honest with your confession? Have you had enough experience trying to, you know, fix this thing yourself, trying to break the addiction, trying to start a new chapter in your spiritual story? Have you learned that maybe just another prayer for the 77th time probably isn't going to work? It's time to do what's right. Listen, this is Christianity. At the very foundation of our teaching is that you are apparently so bad that God had to save you. None of us are going to be shocked when we find out that you're actually a sinner. What? <laughs> I thought you were Jesus this whole time. <laughs> of, of course we sin. Of course we're tempted by all of the things. Are there people who are, are tempted to use? Right here in this space right now, yes. Are there people who looked at porn this morning? Yes. Are there people whose marriages, well, probably not make it through the year. Yes. Are there people who have thought about self-harm in this space? Yes. Are there people who forget the promises of God and just get worried and anxious? Are there controlling people, angry people, people who struggle with abuse, incarceration? Yes, 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 and yes. Let's just get that on the table so we can honestly do the right thing and take the risk and confess. 
And besides the gospel of Jesus Christ, if there's one thing that I'm convinced makes for a great church, it's honest people. I don't want to spend the next 10 years as a pastor here with people who fake it. But I'll tell you what, when people are real and they give you a real chance to pray, to step by their side and actually fight for them for this faith, that's a beautiful church. It's a messy church and it's a complicated church, but it is the kind of church that Jesus wants us to be. And so, for some of you, God's shoving you. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to (laughs) sweat. Yeah, part of you is going to be freaking out. But you find that person or those people in your life that you know and you know that they love you and you tell them, don't try to fix it. You'll be as sick as your secrets. You tell them what's happening so they can pray for you, love you, forgive you in Jesus' name. Take the risk. And if you need to confront someone, it's time to take the risk. That's actually normal Christianity if you actually read the Bible. Rebuke, correction, confrontation. The Bible assumes we have blind spots. And and some of you are in the perfect position to take that risk. It's not your job to confront everyone about everything, but there are some people in your life, right, where you, you are probably the best position, just like Esther was in the palace, to say something. Think about me. I mean, if there's something that I'm doing as a pastor that's, that's damaging to this church community, if some decision I'm making, if I have some blind spot that I'm not seeing, who better to say something to me than some of you who have been here for a very long time? Who else is going to confront me? The first-time guest? Right, but if you've been worshiping by my side, if, you, if you've respected me enough to show up here Sunday after Sunday and sit in these chairs, you have earned the right to say something to me so that I can become a better man, a better Christian, and a better shepherd of this church. Do you get nervous writing the email to the pastor? For sure. Is it worth the risk? Maybe it's your granddaughter or your son. And you see on social media that they're just... They're just regurgitating the things of the world. Living your truth, being your authentic self. Jesus said you shouldn't judge, right? Christians are just supposed to love and never say anything bad about anyone, right? But but you know better. Like, you know better. And you're scared to say something because you love them and they love you back. But 50 years from now, when they stand before Jesus, don't you want them to have a chance to change their mind before it's too late? Before sin swallows them up and their heart is so hardened to the truth? You think some street corner preacher is going to give them a pamphlet? No. God's talking to you. Say something. They know that you, they love you. They know that you love them. You of all people have the relational credibility to say something. And so if it's your son, your daughter, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your pastor, your neighbor, your teammate, it's... It's time to step up and take the risk. Or, last example, maybe it's time to finally invite him to church with you. The Bible says we should be wise in the way we act towards people who are not Christians. Pounding on people's doors and demanding they repent and come to church. Probably not wise. But if you've known someone for a while and love them, Are you at that point where there's not much left to do besides just 
Ask them. You've been neighbors for seven years. You've been teammates for four seasons. Like, the time has come to take the risk. I mean, people constantly in this community who have no clue what the gospel even is. They have a spotty church experience that was all about rules and religion and rituals and going through the motions. They've never actually heard the good news of a God who sent his son to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Maybe this year, maybe this month, maybe this week is the time when you take the risk and say, hey, I don't know why I haven't brought this up before, but there's this crazy thing we're talking about in our church and you really got to hear it. Invite them into the midst of it, but bring the gospel to them. Whatever it is, take the risk. Go and make disciples of all nations. You're the one that God is tapping on the shoulder. So I don't know where God is shoving you today, whether it's a confession, a confrontation, or an invitation, but sometimes it's you. And here's my promise to you. If you take the risk you will get either one or two blessings. Either it turns out great and you get joy, someone to pray for you in your struggle, someone who changes their bad habits, someone who joins you in church, there's there's joy in that. And if it doesn't go well, you get peace. Let me tell you what, there is a peace of mind for people who don't turn a blind eye and become chickens and and bail. There is a peace of mind when you've done your part, not brushed it under the rug, but said something. When you've tried and opened your heart, join me in learning about Jesus. You get joy, you get peace, sometimes you get both. And those blessings are a reminder why doing right is worth the risk. Let me leave you today with two stories and I'll say amen. Number one, Jesus. Do you think right now Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God? Do you think Jesus Christ is happy that he took the risk? Like 2,000 years ago when the Father sent him to this earth, he, he knew from day one, like, like Mordecai, he could see the death clock ticking down. He knew how he would die. He knew when he would die. He knew how painful his death would be. And yet Jesus said, Father, your will be done. Saving you, loving you, giving you a spot in a place where there is no danger or discomfort. That was so meaningful to Jesus that he risked everything. If I perish, I perish, Esther said. Jesus came into this world saying, I'm going to perish. And he picked to perish. He chose the path where he would have to bear the cross because he loved you so deeply. And he wanted you on this very day not to live with guilt or shame, but to fall asleep knowing that I'm I'm good with God. No matter what happens, my relationship with God is perfect and I have a hope and a future in heaven. That meant so much to Jesus that he risked everything. And so he came down to earth and then he crawled up on a cross and then he climbed out of the tomb on Easter morning and now forever and ever and ever and ever, all of God's people are so grateful that our Savior, our Jesus, took the risk. That is our foundation and our hope that no matter how these people react, what they say and what they do, because Jesus took the risk, we always have God. 
Aren't you glad Jesus Christ wasn't a chicken? I am. And I'm glad that Dr. King wasn't either. When Dr. King had a chance to step up and help Rosa Parks, he took a risk, and it was risky indeed. Soon after, she wouldn't give up her seat on the bus. In 1956, a racist like Haman bombed Dr. King's house. Thankfully, his daughter was not inside. But he refused to step back. Aren't you glad he didn't? And when they threw him in that Birmingham jail, aren't you glad instead of cowering, he wrote a letter that stirred the heart of American Christians? And instead of zipping his lip about his dream, aren't you glad that he stood up and said, I I have a dream where black and white will play together just as God intended. If you could go back in history and speak to a young Dr. King, that 20-something man, would you tell him to just sit down, shout his mouth, and play it safe? Nope. Because years later in history, and always looking back from eternity, doing right, is worth the risk. Our turn. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious God, thanks for pushing us today. Um, There's some situations that feel like a, a giant mountain to climb, but you've promised us that on the other side of that mountain is something better than right now. Uh, There are people who are hearing my words right now who have been hiding a sin and it's been gnawing at their conscience for way too long. Today is their day of liberation and deliverance. There are some situations in in families, God, and maybe even in this church that have festered for too long. Today is a day of correction, confrontation, and reconciliation. And there's some people that we're going to see in the next 24 hours who've never known, they've never heard, they don't know how glorious and good you are. They've never felt and tasted this, the sweetness of walking with Jesus, but this is going to be their time when they hear that simple invitation and it might lead to their conversion and eventually their glorification. So God, thanks for pushing us. Thanks for being tough with us. I pray now instead of giving in to fear and worry and what ifs, we could be like Esther, motivated by Mordecai. If I perish, I perish. But I'm going to do what's right. Heavenly Father, thank you that when we, when we cower back in fear, there's grace. Thank you for all the times in our past that we wish we could redo with more courage. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of those sins too. God, I pray that this place and we as people could be not just the most loving, but also the most bold, the most courageous, the most daring as we pray, not just with our lips, but with our hearts and with our lives. Father, your will be done. It's in Jesus' name that we ask all these things. And all God's people said, Amen.